0: Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
1: The world of bacteria goes under the microscope this week. We'll be hearing how scientists are delving into the soil for the antibiotics of tomorrow... How plants like clover and peas trap bugs in their roots to put nitrogen into the ground. And a new way to make cows much more environmentally friendly.
2: We have worked using new grass varieties that when we feed them to the animals, the animals grow quicker and we have 25% less methane.
1: Hello, it's Sunday the 27th of May. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Sarah Castor-Perry and also here this week is Chris Smith.
3: Hello, and in the news this week, why shift work could affect your fertility, why supermarket tomatoes don't taste too good, and the world's biggest diamond. It's more than a metre across, and it's being built in Britain.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: Surprising as it sounds, the majority of antibiotic drugs actually come from microbes themselves, particularly streptomyces bacteria, which naturally live in the soil. Strathclyde University's Paul Hoskisson studies these bugs to understand their metabolism and how they grow, and also look for new antimicrobial agents. And he joins us now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Sarah. So why do microbes need to make antibiotics in the first place?
4: Well, there's been a lot of interest in this over a long period of time. The soil where they live is is a very complicated environment and there are lots of competitor organisms there. Uh, so they have to compete with other bacteria, with fungi, with protozoa, and also uh, higher organisms like nematodes. So one of the ways that they can do this is by giving themselves a competitive advantage. So by producing compounds that can perhaps kill these competitors or signal to those competitors that they need to leave the area where there's a resource that they like to defend. And this is how streptomyces and their related actinomycete bacteria try and defend the nutrients they live on. So they're uh, primary degraders of lots of dead leaves and dead insect carapaces within the, the soil. So it's really about defending any available nutrients in the soil.
1: And how do they actually go about making them? What's the process?
4: So the process is is incredibly complicated. So in, in simple terms, they have large arrays of genes that we call biosynthetic clusters that you find within their genomes. And they take primarily carbon and, and some nitrogen molecules and they assemble these into very complicated chemical structures, which are made within the cells and then they excrete them out into the environment to act on their competitor organisms, and this can be over a range of chemical classes, some of them incredibly complicated and, and representing huge molecular masses
1: and i 'm guessing because they 're so complicated that that 's why we go looking for them in bacteria and we don 't try and synthesize themselves in ourselves in the lab.
4: Yeah, absolutely. These chemical structures are often very difficult to make uh, using synthetic organic chemistry. And actually, over millions of years of evolution, these organisms have developed the chemistry and enzymes which can do these reactions very efficiently and very quickly. So the pharmaceutical factories are already out there in the soil, so we may as well go and find them.
1: I suppose also, though, they're not just producing these chemicals to sort of tell other microbes to get lost from their food source. They're also doing all kinds of other processes as well. How do we optimise it when we make these things, when we use these bacteria ourselves? How do we optimise that they are just making the chemicals that we want and not making all these other things that we don't necessarily find useful?
4: We've looked for many strains over probably the last 60 or so years and we often find a strain that makes one particular product very well. That's easy to then transfer into liquid culture and scale up into big fermentations where the organism secretes it into the media, and then we can just harvest the media, then purify the antibiotic from that. More recently, what's happened is, since we've been sequencing genomes of these organisms, is we've actually found the genes to make lots of other compounds. uh, And there's a lot of interest now in how we can perhaps harness the power of those hidden clusters and activate them and start to identify new antibiotics in that way.
1: And if you're able to then use these genes in perhaps other microbes that are easier to culture does that reduce the worry that you might also get contaminants going
4: on in there as well well i mean these organisms are generally saprophytic organisms they live on dead leaves and don't cause any any pathogenicity so that the fermentations are incredibly safe and represent uh, very little in in terms of of pathogen threat But often they're very slow-growing organisms because they live in the soil and resources are scarce. They don't need to grow quickly. So, for example, everybody knows that an organism like Escherichia coli can double every 20 minutes or so under optimum lab conditions. For some of the streptomyces, this may be in the region of, of 4 to 12 hours for their doubling time. So really, what we do is we try and move these biosynthetic clusters for antibiotics into strains that grow a little bit quicker, or can perhaps make more of that product.
1: And could we just go out into our back gardens and dig up a trowel full of soil, and it would have the type of useful streptomyces bacteria that you're looking
4: at? Absolutely. Um, the antibiotic streptomycin, which is, is very famous for being the first antibiotic active against strep, uh, against mycobacterium tuberculosis, the organism that causes TB, is one of the commonest streptomyces that you can isolate and you get maybe 10 million uh, streptomyces griseus spores in every gram of soil in virtually every environment we've looked in.
1: So have we found everything there is to find or is there still more out there, do you think?
4: No, absolutely not. There are lots of organisms still out there and there's a lot of interest now in exploring unusual niches such as um, hyperadarid soils from from deserts such as the Atacama Desert is an area of particular interest at the moment, but also looking in muds and silts at the bottom of the ocean uh, and lots of really good compounds have been found recently, uh, even those having anti-cancer activities as well.
1: One of the main problems, I suppose one of the main worries with antibiotics is the the problem of resistance. If these chemicals are already existing in the soil and already interacting with other microbes, is there the danger that there's already a level of resistance there that could spread to humans?
4: Well, resistance is a bit like taxes. It's inevitable um, because these organisms have been around for 400 million years living in the soil, interacting with other soil organisms because they produce These compounds, they have to also be resistant to their own compounds. So many of the antibiotic resistance genes that we see in the clinic probably have their origin in streptomycete like bacteria. There's been some work from a lab in Canada recently um, by Jerry Wright where they've looked in caves that have never had any human activity in there and they still find antibiotic resistance genes out there in the environment um, that are still relevant in the clinic. So resistance genes are out there and resistance will be inevitable. So we need to keep looking and finding and optimising antibiotics.
1: Thanks, Paul. That was Paul Hoskisson from Strathclyde University.
3: And actually Paul's with us for the rest of the programme. So if you have any questions or any comments on the microbial world, then he's happy to answer them for you. He'll be doing that later in the programme. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can email chris at com.
1: This week we're talking about the microbial world and how it can help to keep us fit and fed.
3: Indeed. And in Western countries, the average person eats their own weight in meat every year, which means that livestock rearing makes a significant contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. This is partly because ruminant animals like cows release methane, which is produced by the bacteria growing in their digestive tracts. Aberystwyth University scientist Jamie Newbold has found that changes to farming practices, though, can alter the microbes inside animals, and that makes the animals much more efficient at growing, and also much less environmentally unfriendly.
2: So the challenge we have is, as everybody knows, there's going to be 9 billion people by uh, 2050. And we've got to find ways of feeding them. In many levels, that will be about better crop production. But we also have to remember that a lot of the land in the world is only suitable for growing grass. So in the UK, for instance, about 60% of our land is grassland. On a global level, it's maybe about 35 37%. So we've got to find ways of converting that into human edible food and of course the way to do that is to use herbivores and particularly ruminants, cattle, sheep, goats, to convert things that aren't edible by us into things that are edible by us in the form of meat and milk.
3: Good news for people who like meat like me, less good news for vegetarians perhaps, but what is the, the downside of doing that? Because it sounds like there's plenty of land, we just have more cows and sheep and goats.
2: I don't think I'm necessarily talking about more sheep and goats. We're we'll talking about restructuring so that we don't compete with humans for human edible feed. When you feed cattle things that you and I can eat, they're relatively inefficient. Less than 65% of the energy transfers into the meat. However, when we feed cattle, grass, things that we can't eat, the actual increase in the human edible protein is about 700%. So it's changing the way we use ruminant livestock. So they use food that we can't. Now, the challenges in doing that are to make sure it's efficient and to make sure we minimize the environmental damage associated with cattle and sheep.
3: There are two challenges there. Let's take the first one first, the efficiency. From what you've just said, though, it sounds like ruminant animals are already extremely efficient. So how can we improve on that?
2: Well, the rumen's a fascinating environment. To Take the dairy cow, for instance. You've got a rumen there that's about 100 litres bigger. That's the size of a domestic dustbin, full of microbes, all actively degrading the food. What we need to do is make sure that that degradation is the most efficient so that we get the best transfer of the nutrients that are in the grass through the microbes and then into the animal.
3: And in order to make that process more efficient we've got to tweak the microbes?
2: Or we can tweak the forage. So what our own research is doing is trying to understand how the microbes interact with the forage so that we can advise farmers on planting the right grass that then is fermented the most efficiently in the rumen and ultimately trying to balance the forage with the microbes and of course with the host because the other thing we know is that the animal itself has a large degree of control on the microbial population in the gut.
3: This is the sort of prebiotic effect isn't it? It's in the same way that people say if you eat a lot of porridge you have beta-glucans in your diet and this promotes the growth of healthy or so-called good bacteria in your intestine. You're talking about doing a similar sort of thing with what you feed into your ruminant animals.
2: It's a very similar concept. It's about maximising the output and of course as I said before minimising the environmental issues.
3: Well since you've raised that What about the fact that the microbes in cows at the moment are extremely bad for the world because they pump out huge amounts of methane? Can we do anything about that?
2: Oh, I think we can. I think it's maybe the first point to make. It's important to remember that it's this microbial population that produces the methane. And we can do a lot to reduce that. So, for instance, we have worked using new grass varieties that when we feed them to the animals, the animals grow quicker and we have 25% less methane. Colleagues in New Zealand are working on vaccines, that you can vaccinate the animal. So you destroy the methanogenic archaea in the rumen, and the animal produces less methane. And then most excitingly of all, there seems to be now good evidence that methane production by ruminants is actually a heritable trait. And just in the same way that we breed for high milk production, we can probably breed for animals that produce less methane. So I think we have nutritional, we have vaccination, and we inevitably have genetic methods.
3: Just to return to the point you were making about getting rid of the methanogens, the bacteria that make the methane in the guts of the animals, is one not necessary to have the other in the sense that it's interesting how this is such a ubiquitous trait in these animals? They produce huge amounts of methane. Is it not necessary for them to grow as efficiently as they do, to taste as tasty as they do when you send them to the abattoir and then turn them into a burger? Are we not going to end up, if we lose those microbes, with a less efficient animal in the long
2: run? Mm. Now, you might have thought that would be so, but there have been proof-of-concept studies done where we've used chloroform, and chloroform is a direct analogue of methane. And although chloroform clearly is not a practical feed additive, when you add chloroform to the rumen, you switch off methane production. And us and others have done trials now showing that when you do that, you can raise methane-free animals, and they grow perfectly well, and the products you get out are the same. So... Surprisingly, it seems this is an avoidable problem.
3: Well, let's put some numbers on this then. So what sort of impact do you think that this sort of work could have on the amount of energy that we can supply the human race with? Are we looking at a food sustainability problem if we implement this still? And also, what about the environmental impact? What sort of a dent in methane and therefore indirectly carbon equivalents can we make with this?
2: Okay, so to try and break that down, food security, let's be clear, this is only part of the problem. We need, as everybody knows, to reduce the amount of red meat that rich Western diets contain. So I'm not advocating a high meat diet. I'm advocating red meat as part of a balanced diet. So it's only part of the solution to food security. Environmentally, just to give you some ballpark figures, the average dairy cow produces about 30 litres of methane for every kilogram of dry matter it eats, our estimates suggest that if we get farmers to manage their animals better, then if the worst farmers farmed as well as the middle farmers, we might have a 15 to 20 percent reduction. If everybody farmed as well as the best farmers, there might be another 10 percent. So a lot we can do just by advising farmers. In terms of additives, there is no magic bullet on the horizon, but there are certainly plenty of solutions that will make further reductions in the region of 20 to 25%. So we can make a real difference to the impact of the uh, greenhouse gases from ruminants.
3: Jamie Newbold from Aberystwyth University. We've heard from uh, Paul in Warrington in Peterborough, and he says, talking of microbes and where they live, why is athlete's foot just on the feet? Why do they just live there? Well, the answer is that microbes have their own niche. There are certain places on the body where they like to be. They're optimised to grow in those places, and feet are wonderful. They have dead skin, which is a of protein, lots of sweat, and it's warm, and it's protected, and it's easy to spread around because you have to put your feet on the ground when you walk about.
0: Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
3: It's The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Sarah Caster-Perry.
1: Still to come, how plants like peas and clover team up with microbes to boost soil nitrogen. How does it work and how effective is it?
3: But before that, let's take a look at some of this week's other leading scientific breakthroughs. And to kick off... Working night shifts could significantly affect your fertility. At least that's what scientists at Northwestern University are suggesting in a paper in PLOS One this week. This is Fred Turek and his colleagues. And what they have done is to base their research on anecdotal reports and epidemiological studies which have shown that if you take large groups of people and you ask them whether or not they're trying to get pregnant, you tend to find that people who are doing shift work or have a disrupted body clock... ...often report more difficulty falling pregnant than individuals that work and sleep normal hours. So what they have done is to take a big group of mice that were entrained to a day and night cycle... ...in the same way that we are, and they then made them pregnant in the obvious way. They introduced a male mouse and 90% of them got pregnant and they could examine them to confirm that was the case. And then what they did was to divide them into three groups. The first group was a control group. This group were just kept on the same day-night cycle they had been on before... The second two groups, so the second and third group of animals, were put on, I suppose, the rodent equivalent of doing night shifts. And every four days, they would shift their body clock by six hours. And what they found is that in the animals that were rotated in this way, their success at pregnancy fell from 90% of having an outcome of a baby to 50% in some cases and it was worst in the animals that were having their body clocks advanced. In other words, they were seeing a reduction in the amount of sleep available to the animal. And although we don't know exactly why this happens, and we don't know that this is true of humans because it was a study in animals, it does tally with what the original epidemiology is showing. And also they point out in their paper that recent research has shown that every single cell in the body has its own body clock which is effectively set by the clock in the brain. And this includes the uterus, where babies have to grow, and the placenta. And the signals cross that placenta, and they affect the fetus too. And they set up the tissues biochemically to optimise their activity and their energy production and so on, to match the time of day. So if you have got the time of day continuously changing, then your baby is trying to grow at the wrong time when there's less nutrient available from the mother, the placenta is not optimised in the same way, and nor is the uterus. And so it's not surprising that this pregnancy success rate should fall by almost half. And they say in the paper, this really does need looking into in humans, and I think I'm inclined to agree.
1: Perhaps they should try putting mice on long-haul flights and seeing if the same thing happens if the mice get jet lag.
3: I think they, they effectively have haven't <laughs> with this.
1: Um, Well, I've got a story uh, about how researchers have developed a DNA-based memory chip for storing information inside cells. It can be used to record data in a living cell without using silicon chips like we do in computers. This could allow us to track cell divisions to study cell processes like development, ageing and also the changes that occur in cancer. Now, DNA is directional, which means it points in one direction or the other. And now a team led by Jerome Bonnet at Stanford University have found a way to encode information using enzymes that can flip small pieces of DNA between their normal direction, which acts like a zero, and the opposite direction, which acts like a one, which means that this piece of DNA can store one bit of data. And the process used is reliable enough to write and rewrite information into this little chip again and again. The researchers found that by using an enzyme called integrase, which is borrowed from a type of virus called a bacteriophage that attacks bacteria, they were able to chop out a small section of DNA, flip it over and stitch it back into the main DNA strand, changing its direction and therefore setting the switch to one rather than zero. Then by applying integrase again, this time along with another enzyme called excisionase, they were able to cut the DNA section out, flip it back to its original orientation and stitch it back, resetting it to zero. It's also then possible to read data from the memory chips. It's no good being able to program it and not read it using different coloured proteins. When the DNA is in the zero configuration, the green fluorescent protein or GFP gene is switched on, which makes the cell glow green. And when it's in the one configuration, RFP, which makes a red protein, is produced, making the cell glow red. This could be used to show when a cell has undergone a particular number of cell divisions or if a particular gene in the cell has been switched on. The enzymes used are both members of a group called recombinases, and the team have dubbed this data storage system the Recombinase Addressable Data Module, or RAD for short. It's a bit of a mouthful. Now, the next step for this way of storing data is not to work out how to increase the power up to a terabyte to find a new type of computer, but to get it up to around 8 bits or a byte. And Drew Endy, one of the team working on the RAD system, believes that the real power of it isn't that we can invent new computers with it, it's that it can be used where silicon can't, actually inside living cells.
3: It's almost like a logbook for... Cells, isn't it? It's effectively you can use it to store data about something that's happened to a set of cells. And as they increase the memory capacity, cells could register all kinds of exposures to different chemicals or different genes turning on or off. You could actually use it to trace and retrace what processes cells go through in order to understand how they work.
1: Absolutely. And the team also um, argued that you could use it so that if a cell has undergone a certain number of divisions and is therefore more likely to turn cancerous, it can switch on the trigger for the cell to die so that you don't get any cancerous changes.
3: Sounds good. Thank you, Sarah. Now, I have in front of me a tray of rather nice, fleshy-looking supermarket tomatoes. But I guarantee, if I chow down onto these, they're not going to taste as nice, probably, as the ones that you can grow at home. Now, to combat widespread public dissatisfaction with supermarket-perfect tomatoes like mine, in other words, ones that look great but are deceptively bland and tasteless when you eat them, scientists have now tracked down and published the cocktail of chemicals that need to be there to constitute a much more flavoursome fruit. And Professor Harry Klee from the University of Florida has done the work. He's with us. Hello, Harry. Hello. So was it your own displeasure at Shop Bought Tomatoes that prompted you to do what must have been a huge tour de force?
5: Well, that was certainly a part of it. Uh, certainly if, if you're of a certain generation and you've grown your own tomatoes or had access to them, you realise that some of them taste great. And then you both go to the store and they taste incredibly bland and it's clearly a huge problem it's the number one complaint in the u.s of consumers with regard to produce and so yeah it's uh it was a a daunting task but one that uh, that just cried out to be done
3: so how did you approach this did did you say well the ones that are in the supermarket have been bred that way let's look upstream of that at the ones that uh, they came from and see if we can put some of the flavors back how did you approach it
5: Yeah, that's precisely it. Um, You know, breeders over the years have worked very hard to give their customers what they want. Unfortunately, their customers are the growers who just want more and more yield. And the growers are not paid for producing objects that taste good. So basically, the breeders have, through selection over the last 50 or more years, picked out varieties that have really high yields but have absolutely no taste. And so, if you go back to the pre intensive breeding periods, you have what in the U.S. we call heirloom tomatoes, you know, varieties that have been around for a hundred years or more, which have fabulous taste. They're not very farmer friendly, you get very poor yields, they're very susceptible to diseases, but they taste great. So you know that out there, there's a massive reservoir of really good-tasting material. And so the trick was, in our case, to go back to that material that preceded the intensive breeding and and understand, well, what is good flavor?
3: How did you do that? Did you literally put samples of these 100-plus species of heirloom tomatoes in front of tasters and say, what's good, what's bad?
5: That's exactly what we did. So we grew up, we're up to now, about a couple of hundred different varieties that have vastly different chemical profiles and vastly different tastes. Some of them are outstanding. Some of them really aren't very good, and you wonder why people grew them in the first place. But that incredible diversity that's out there gave us this, this opportunity to do a big test where we could take Oh, upwards of 100 or more varieties, basically, we gave them to a large consumer panel and said, what do you think of them? And then we took samples of those and ground them up and determine what chemicals related to flavor were in each of them. And basically, you can take All of that massive amount of data of chemistry and consumer preferences and through statistics, you can extract out, well, what's in the good ones? What's in the bad ones? And in theory, you can put together a recipe for the ideal tomato.
3: So you screen them across all these people, you see trends emerging where certain combinations of chemicals appear to associate with people saying this is very nice, it tastes very nice, it's nice and sweet, that's what I like. Other chemicals seem to be less important. You home in on what those chemicals are. Do you now know then exactly what constitutes the ideal tomato in terms of its chemistry?
5: The simple answer is yes. The more complex answer is there are still differences with people in terms of what individuals like. And so the way I like to describe it is to say we can optimize for the chemical composition of a great tasting tomato. It won't necessarily be everybody's favorite, but I think everyone would say it's right up there with the very best Certain individuals might like something that's a little sweeter. Some individuals like something with a little more acidity to them. But by and large, yes, we can extract out the recipe for a great tasting tomato.
3: And would the idea be then that you can now rationally breed strains of tomatoes, going back to those heirloom strains, and selecting out chemically the ones that have the right biochemical proportions of these chemicals breed from those and then slowly arrive at one that does have good shelf life and supermarket friendly characteristics but also blends in a lot of these other important flavorants
5: yeah that's exactly the approach i mean unfortunately until a a large commercial grower is paid to produce something that tastes really good We have to work within those constraints at the commercial level. We have to have a tomato that really does produce high yield and really is resistant to all the diseases the farmer encounters. But by going back and knowing the specific chemistry of what is great taste, and and we know that the genetics is there within the heirloom populations. We just have to go back and recapture it, and that's going to take time because of those constraints of yield and disease and shelf life. But I think you know we know how to do it. It's, we basically have provided the roadmap for what genetics we need to combine to get the product that tastes good.
3: It's ironic that uh, modern-day breeding gave us something we don't like, and we're now having to go back to what people had done originally to put it right. But tell us then, what are the important chemicals you've found that constitute the perfect tomato, and were there any surprises?
5: Yes, there were. I mean, number one is sugar. We know that people really, uh, through genetics over, over eons, have been selected for picking out things that have lots of calories. So sugar is really the number one. But beyond the sugar, you very quickly get to compounds, which are the smell components, the volatile chemicals that we smell. And there are a few of those that are really important. They're actually the chemicals that are related to the same compounds that give the fruit color and the carotenoids. There are carotenoid breakdown products that are very, very strong contributors to flavor and they really uh, make a huge difference in terms of preferences.
3: Super Harry, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you for joining us. Harry's actually gonna stay with us because if you have any plant related questions or comments, he will answer them for you at the end of the programme. But that's Harry Clee from the University of Florida. Wayne from Norwich got in touch and said, I go to a certain supermarket, the tomatoes I buy there are really nice. They have a really good flavor to them. Where do you get them, Wayne, tell me because because I want some, the ones I'm buying clearly don't. Now, also this week, the decision was finally made about where the most powerful telescope that's ever been conceived will be built starting in 2015. Australia and South Africa had both submitted rival bids to host the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA. This is a multi-billion pound network of over 3,000 radio dishes that will enable scientists to see further into the universe's history than we've ever seen before. This week, though, at a meeting in the Netherlands, it was decided that rather than award it to just one, both countries would end up hosting parts of the telescope. And Bernie Fanaroff is the director of the South African bid, and he was at that meeting.
6: We're very happy indeed. We would obviously have liked to have had the entire SK in Africa, but once the Square Kilometre Array Site Advisory Committee recommended Southern Africa as the signal site, it became clear that many of the members of the SK organization wanted to keep Australia in the project and asked for a small team of scientists to see whether there were any ways in which parts of the telescope could be built in both continents which would be both viable in respect of cost and would not detract from the science. So they came back with uh, some options, and at the meeting yesterday in Amsterdam, the SKA organisation's board took a decision that the low-frequency array, what's called the sparse array, would be built in Australia, and the dishes and the aperture array would be built in Africa.
3: And spreading the telescope out, not just across two countries but two continents there's an ocean in the middle does that in any way alter the way in which the project has to be operated or does actually spreading it out in this way strengthen things
6: in the first stage it will allow us to do more science for pretty much the same amount of money in the second phase we still have to go through a very intensive period of system engineering and design and technology down-selection and so on before we can make accurate uh, estimates of the cost. But I don't expect the cost of operating the two sites to be restrictive. As far as the science is concerned, what we'll do is to analyze the data from each of the three arrays pretty much uh, at the sites themselves. So what will be transmitted to science centers around the world is already concentrated down by the high-performance computing centres.
3: And what does the fact that this is coming to South Africa, it could not have done, it could have ended up in Australia, what does this mean to Southern Africa?
6: Well, I think, first of all, it's a recognition that Southern Africa can do it. I don't think that a lot of people would have seen South Africa and Africa as a possible centre for high tech and uh, leading mega science. So it's really a way of changing the world's perception of what we can do. And also, of course, it changes our own perception of what we can do. We've already seen a lot of enthusiasm over the Meerkat with lots of young people coming into science and engineering, over 400 grants since 2005, young people from all over Africa, And we've seen a lot of very, very good young researchers coming from Europe and North America and other places to work in South Africa. So we expect that that'll increase. So hopefully what we'll be able to do is to reverse the brain drain.
3: Bernie Fanaroff, who is the director of the South African SKA bid. Sarah.
1: And now, with a look at some of the other stories that have been making scientific headlines this week, here's Mira Senthilingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash.
7: The first delivery of cargo to the International Space Station by a private company was successfully launched this week by the California based SpaceX. Their Falcon 9 rocket took off from NASA's Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida on Tuesday, the 22nd of May carrying the Dragon capsule, containing supplies of meal packets, a laptop, clothes and some student experiments, with Dragon rendezvousing with the space station on Friday. The successful return of the capsule back to Earth once it undocks at the end of the month will lead to an official contract for the company to fly 12 cargo missions to the space station in the future. NASA's Charles Bolden comments.
6: The significance of this day cannot be overstated. A private company has launched a spacecraft to the International Space Station. We're now back on the brink of a new future, a future that embraces the innovation the private sector brings to the table and a future that opens up the skies to endless possibilities. Congratulations to the SpaceX and NASA teams and Godspeed Dragon.
7: British adventurer Ben Fogel announced plans this week to take to the Atlantic to swim over 3,000 miles from North America to Cornwall in summer 2013. As part of the expedition, Fogel will become a human research vessel, carrying microsensors on his body to monitor marine temperatures, dissolved gases, and algae in the thin surface layer of the ocean as he swims providing researchers at the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton with a greater insight into the air-sea interface and the general state of the ocean.
8: There's all sorts of exciting possibilities. To use technology, use me, I'm going to be out there doing this ridiculous challenge that's going to be hard enough anyway. And the more useful it can be to people, the more of a drive it will be for me to keep on going. To date, everyone has felt that our oceans are unpollutable. Well, that's not true. The net results of all that pollution and the overfishing, it's a cyclical effect that will have catastrophic effects in the long term. And I think the more people that can just raise awareness of what we're doing, the better it will be for all of us.
7: Urban gardens designed to prevent allergy flare-ups in hay fever sufferers have been displayed at the Chelsea Flower Show in London this week. The exhibit, hosted by the Royal College of Pathologists, displayed two rooftop gardens, similar in appearance, but with one containing wind-pollinating plants such as lavender and ferns that trigger hay fever, and the other sterilised or insect-pollinating plants such as hydrangeas or Japanese maple, which don't spread pollen through the air. The exhibit aimed to raise awareness of allergies such as hay fever, which affects 20-30% to of the UK population, as gardens in densely populated and urban environments become more popular. Peter Furness is the college's former president.
8: Greening the urban environment is fantastic, but if you're going to do that, it's probably a good idea to be aware of the consequences you could have on the health of all the people living nearby. And respiratory allergies are a growing problem. You can have a beautiful garden with or without respiratory allergies, depending on whether that's a problem for you. There's quite a few people producing vertical green walls. It seems to be quite fashionable. And we've had them coming around saying, we need to think about this. We're putting these green walls with plants really in your face in an urban environment, and they need to realise it might be a problem.
7: And finally, the largest model of diamond in the world is being built by scientists at the University of Kiel in celebration of the Queen's Jubilee. Standing at 2 metres in height and 1.8 metres in width, The octahedral structure uses 35,990 transparent balls, representing the carbon atoms that make up diamond, held together by over 70,000 sticks, acting as the covalent bonds between them. The model will be unveiled just in time for the Jubilee in the central marketplace of the town of Eutoxita in the UK. Graham Jones is leading the project.
9: So we're going to build the largest model of diamond in the world and we wanted to get a Guinness World Record and that's forced us to go to this humongous size. So we've been working with lots of schools around the local area, local people in the town centre, putting the model together. It should hopefully be unveiled on the 2nd of June.
7: So be sure to look out for the diamond if you pass through the town of Utoxeter during the Jubilee weekend.
1: That was Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash. Transcripts and references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. And if you can't make it to Utoxeter, you'll be able to see pictures online after its unveiling at facebook.com slash Jubilee Diamond. That's all one
3: word. And if you can't spell Utoxeter, it's U-T-T-O-X-E-T-E-R. Trees tend to get all of the credit for absorbing carbon dioxide from the air. But some of the tiniest plants on the planet, phytoplankton, also do a fair bit of the work. In fact, the sea is teeming with these microscopic organisms, and Katie Owen from the University of East Anglia is passionate about them. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to visit Katie on a cold and blustery beach at the UK's most easterly point, Lowestoft.
10: You have to think of them a little bit like the grass of the sea. They're tiny, microscopic plants, sort of thinner in diameter than a strand of human hair, and you find them everywhere in seas and oceans, around the world, hot, cold water. They're tiny little powerhouses. They photosynthesize and, in doing so, remove um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and convert it into organic carbon as part of their bodies.
8: OK, well, let's get a bit closer to the water, and we're not going to be able to see them, presumably, are we?
10: No, no, they're very small in diameter, really, really thin, thinner than a sheet of cling film.
8: Let me just get a handful of water then. So I've got a handful of water and wet feet. How many plankton are there in there? Is that, is that really just full of plankton? It's
10: absolutely teeming. Um, you can have as many as sort of 20,000 um, individual cells in just a mill of water, so huge quantities in a very small amount of volume.
8: And you're interested in this not just because it's important for the food chain, but its role in the global climate.
10: Exactly, right. Um, because they photosynthesise, it's, it's really key. They remove this carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they take it out, out of circulation, they incorporate it into their bodies, and then as they die or are eaten by something else in the food web, that carbon is recycled or it's taken to the deep ocean, so it's out of the way, it's removed. So it's a really good way of reducing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. So what are you doing? I use a machine called a flow cytometer, um, which is borrowed from biomedical research. Normally it's used to scan blood cells, but um, I'm applying it to marine science and using it to count these phytoplankton, you know, where they're most abundant, what makes them tick, what nutrient conditions they prefer, everything like that.
8: Well, let's get out of the, the wind here to your laboratory, which is up there on the cliff.
10: Sure, why not?
8: Well, here we are in the Molecular Biology Laboratory at CFAS. CFAS
10: the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science.
8: And you have, rather helpfully, some flasks of phytoplankton. This looks completely green. And This is presumably very concentrated.
10: This is a very concentrated culture. This is um, some cells that we grow here in the lab just for testing purposes. And you can see how dense that is. And Normally you wouldn't get that concentration in a natural sample.
8: And and next to them on the laboratory bench is this curious-looking machine. It's about the size of a... A beer barrel, I suppose, but with the outside exposed and it's full of circuit boards and tubes.
10: It looks horrible, it looks really horribly complicated, but it's actually quite a simple principle. It's a machine it uses it as a pump, and we pump a stream of seawater through the path of a laser beam and as the laser beam hits anything in that seawater such as debris or hopefully phytoplankton cells that laser light is scattered and we collect that information which gives us um, a lot of details on the size and the shape and the structure and also the pigment content of the phytoplankton cells.
8: So of individual phytoplankton so you can count them but you can also see the the size and the shape of them?
10: We have a whole lab which is dedicated to counting phytoplankton cells by a light microscope. But the problem with that is that it only covers a very small range of sizes, so things that we call the nano and the net plankton, which are from 20 to 200 microns. But there's a real whole wealth of phytoplankton below that size range, something called the picoplankton, which are less than 3 microns. So you know we're talking a fraction, a fraction of the size of a human hair follicle. And you can't see them with a light microscope, and um, they're just, just too small to be counted or identified accurately. So this machine is not only capable of measuring them, we can also approximately identify them and um, do thousands of these cells within a few minutes.
8: So are phytoplankton something we should all learn to appreciate a lot more?
10: Definitely. I, mean, I find it amazing that things that are so small and so tiny, we know just so little about, they're so important. I mean, we sail on them, we swim amongst them every day, but we know very little information about them. So I think it's really key that they become more appreciated and loved a little bit more.
3: Phytoplankton enthusiast Katie Owen from the University of East Anglia talking with Richard Hollingham. And you can hear more in the latest Planet Earth podcast available on our website, slash planet Earth. Reacting to the world's best science, The Naked
0: Scientists.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry.
3: And now returning to our theme of plants and microbes for this week, Mira Synthalingam has been to the Chelsea Flower Show in London where she met University of Reading microbiologist Rachel Roberts who's looking at ways to use nitrogen-fixing soil bacteria called rhizobia to improve crop yields.
11: Nitrogen is a fundamental building block for plants. It's the centre of proteins, which means that in order for a plant to grow, it needs nitrogen. It also needs carbon. Carbon's a bit more freely available in the soil. Nitrogen is a very growth-limiting factor for plants. 79% of the atmosphere is made up of nitrogen, N2, which has a triple bond. It's very firmly bound to each other but your average plant can't access this source of nitrogen. Legumes, on the other hand, um, are able to form a relationship with symbiotic um, bacteria called rhizobia, and the rhizobia are able to take this nitrogen out of the air and make it into a plant-available form, which the legumes can then take up.
7: So when you say legumes, it's plants like peas and so on, and beans?
11: There's peas, beans, sweet peas in your garden, also legumes. Then there's things like clovers, vetches, birdsfoot trefoil. lots of different legumes that you'll find in any kind of grassland habitat. What is this relationship?
7: So how are these bacteria useful to the plant, and how do they provide it with nitrogen?
11: The rhizobia fix the nitrogen as ammonia, and through a series of conversions in the soil, it's it's made into plant-available nitrate the use of say legumes
7: in say a crop environment or a farming environment should hopefully reduce the need for nitrogen fertilizers
11: yeah that's right in a year a farm will use about 200 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year and if you've grown legumes in that soil you can say tens of kilograms so it's not going to replace it completely but it is able to provide a, a good amount of nitrogen so you've actually got some legumes here so what particular what plant is this And we've got a pea plant here, and um, we've got its roots out on display so that you can see all the little root nodules on the roots. We've got quite big root nodules, and they're nice and pink, which means they're fixing nitrogen at the moment. Looking at these, it's kind of like strings coming out of the soil, but on there, there are these very clear, round lumps. In each of those nodules, there'll be millions and millions of rhizobia bacteria. But it's not all bacteria. There's plant cells in there as well. Once they're inside the plant, once they're inside the root nodule, they differentiate into these bacteroid cells. And they're the ones who actually fix the nitrogen. But once they've turned into bacteroids, there's no going back. They can't turn back into free-living bacteria.
7: Just next to this here, we've got an, you've got an agar plate, which has got rhizobia on it too. But this essentially looks like just a, a pink kind of slime.
11: Yeah, that's right. It's very slimy. Um, It's only pink because I've got dye in the agar, which helps me to differentiate between rhizobia and other strains of bacteria. The sliminess, which is another thing that helps me tell if it's rhizobia, is because of these polysaccharides that the rhizobia produce. I I just generally call it goo. And the goo helps them to move through the soil, to stick to the plant root. And when it's left behind, um, it helps to improve soil structure. It helps to stick soil aggregates together
7: so when a a legume or a plant that kind of works with these bacteria is planted these bacteria actively kind of search and, and go to the root so
11: although they're giving nitrates to the plant these bacteria actually need the plant they do they can survive in the soil on their own but sometimes food can be a bit hard to come by in the soil it's very complex there's millions and millions of bacteria and they're all competing with each other so if a rhizobia can find a legume root that it's compatible with it's got a sneaky out from that hard lifestyle you can go and get a nice cushy lifestyle if you can find a legume root form a relationship with it it gets a steady supply of carbon so i mean
7: this is very much this is a pea plant you've got here but you work your work focuses in on a very particular type of nitrogen fixing plant
11: Yes, that's right. I work with lucerne, which is a more agricultural plant. You probably wouldn't grow it in your garden. But if you're a farmer and you want um, to grow a legume, it's brilliant because it's very, very drought tolerant. It can have a root that can be metres deep. It can access water and nutrients from way down in the soil profile. And it also provides a very high-quality feed fodder. It's very good for cattle and for horses. So farmers are already kind of using it and know about it. It's been grown in this country on and off for about the last 300 years. Farmers have been aware of it for a long time. It sort of comes in and out of fashion because it's so drought tolerant. So when the weather dries up a bit, it gets used more. But the only problem is that this lucerne plant originated in the Middle East, and that means that the rhizobia that it likes aren't necessarily in England. So we need to make sure that when it's planted, it has the right rhizobia so it can fix nitrogen. Your project now is to identify different strains of this rhizobium
7: that are helping it to grow outside of its native region
11: yeah that's correct I'm hoping to find different strains that they'll be subtly different and those subtle differences will be what enable it to survive in a different habitat how do you find this out so how do you decipher what bacteria are going to work where so what I've been doing is I've been collecting soil from various farm sites and then I grow up these legumes, add some of the soil to catch the rhizobia out of the soil into a, a root nodule on a plant and then I take that root nodule, squish it, plate it up so it goes all goopy on agar and then I try and find out what it is using um, genetic techniques. So what stage are you at with this now? Do you have um, some strains that you've identified? At the moment, I have a freezer full of rhizobia strains that I've isolated from plants that I've grown. So I know that they're strains that work with lucerne. The next stage will be to find out how they're differing. And what's the kind of long-term aim with this, really? Is it to improve, say, crop yields in the future? My my hope would be that, say, you've got a farmer who thinks, my land is getting quite dry at times, I'd quite like to grow a, a legume that is going to be stable under drought conditions. I don't live in an area that has really grown Lucerne before and I want to be able to matchmake the um, the rhizobia that they need with this soil that they have and find a useful strain that will help Lucerne grow there. So it's really just matching the bacteria to the plant and to the setting all in one go and, and will it just be as simple as knowing the soil type and therefore adding the right bacteria, the right rhizobia to it? Um, if farm knows what their soil type is like, um, it will hopefully just be a, a case of matching that soil type to the right strain, adding it as an inoculum to the seed as you drill the seed into the, into the soil. And then as the plant grows, it will be able to form a relationship with that rhizobia and get on and fix some nitrogen. And I guess just lastly, really, why do we want to grow this so much? Is it, say, so
7: much more useful than any other potential legumes?
11: Well, the real benefit to it is that it is so drought-tolerant. So in, with climate instability, it would provide a bit more reliability of of fixing nitrogen. Say you've grown your standard clover mix, that might not cope with the heat and the drought, whereas Lucerne would.
3: That was Reading University's Rachel Roberts. She was talking with Mira Senthalingam at an exhibit assembled by the Society for General Microbiology at the Chelsea Flower Show in London this week.
1: And plants also rely on fungi for food. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about that and more about fungi in general, check out the latest Naked Science scrapbook video. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash scrapbook.
3: And you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Caster-Perry. This week we're exploring the world of plants and microbes. Our guests, the University of Strathclyde microbiologist Paul Hoskisson, and also Professor Harry Cleve from the University of Florida, our resident tomato plant expert. And on the subject of tomato plants, we heard from Peter in Black Notley and he said, what about the growing medium? How does that affect the flavour? He grew some tomatoes in normal soil, they tasted fantastic. His son grew the same tomato plant but used compost, tasted rubbish apparently. Harry, is that true? Soil makes all the difference?
5: Oh, yeah, it makes a huge difference. Uh, most of the commercial tomatoes are actually grown in greenhouses hydroponically, so they don't even have any soil, and it does impact it. Uh, wine growers have known this, wine grape growers rather, have known this for years.
3: Uh, we heard from Steve, he sent this question, yeah. I think this is probably one for you, Paul.
5: As I understand it, there's some
9: concern with too much antibiotics being used in cattle and so on. My question is, can those antibiotics carry over to humans, particularly if the meat is cooked? In other words, does cooking the meat from an animal that's had a bit much antibiotics does the cooking destroy the antibiotic or make it ineffective in humans so as we don't inadvertently give the bacteria opportunity for resistance?
4: Paul, your thoughts? So a lot of antibiotics are, are heat labile, so they're destroyed by the cooking process. But often now there's there's a lot more regulation in terms of using antibiotics in veterinary medicine, so there's no overlap with, with human antibiotics or as little as possible. What about the implication of using
3: antibiotics in terms of, it's not just this country, but other countries often put antibiotics into their animals. What are the implications for resistance and the spread of resistant organisms into humans because of that practice?
4: There is a lot of evidence to suggest that some of the antibiotic resistant staphylococci acquired the resistance mechanisms from related organisms that were found in cattle, possibly due to the use of of antibiotics in those animals. However, there's been a lot of re- tighter regulation across the world now, as people realised that this was a, a possible um, outcome. Sarah?
1: Very quickly, Harry, I've got a question for you from Andrew Reitermeyer on Facebook. He mentions that uh, plants release defensive chemicals when attacked by insects and slugs and things, and he asks, are any of these chemicals of a benefit to us when we eat
5: them? Oh yes, definitely. The classic ones are the brassicas, uh, things like broccoli, onions as well. A lot of the compounds that really give them their distinct flavors are actually defense compounds or breakdown products from defense compounds. So, yeah, they have a huge impact on the quality of what you're eating.
3: So a few slugs are good. Just make sure you brush them off before you finally actually eat the food. Thank you very much, Harry. Sarah.
1: And now we find out what's been making its way down the motorway with Hannah Critchlow.
0: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega.
12: This week, we find out what's been flourishing in central reservations up and down the country.
0: Dear Naked Scientist, my name is Edward Draper. All along the major roads of the UK, you can see little white flowers appearing. And if you stop and look, you can see that it's a form of scurvy grass. Now, this is a beech plant, and it's found a successfully niche of the first few inches from the road. And I'm sure this is partly due to salting the roads, but my question is, given how widespread this flower is, how did it get there? Love to hear an answer. Thank you.
12: So, how has a species so successfully infiltrated the verges of the UK road systems? With the answer is Guy Barter, Chief Horticultural Advisor at the Royal Horticultural Society.
9: We think the plant in question is a native, despite its name... Cochlearia danica or Danish scurvy grass is not actually a grass but it's related to the cabbage family and known to be a halophyte that's a plant that grows in the presence of some salt it's well known to spread along roads often at a remarkable rate per year where presumably the turbulence of passing vehicles helps shift the seeds it's a recent example of the many instances where human activity helps plants spread Dania scurvy grass is an annual that thrives on well-drained but not too dry, sunny soil, so runoff from roads would suit it well, as would the often rubble-like soil beside motorways. It tolerates coastal soil, so it's well adapted to high salt levels besides roads. The seeds ripen in late summer and disperse at that season. The young leaves are actually edible, cooked or raw, but apparently have a pungent flavour. It's rich in vitamin C, lack of which causes scurvy, However, the dust and the dirt beside roads would make me think twice before picking any.
11: So this
12: salt-loving, vitamin C-rich grass, traditionally eaten by scurvy-threatened sailors, is spreading along the major roads of central England. Rock salt, carved from underground mines, is sprinkled on the roads by gritters in the wintertime and this creates conditions similar to the scurvy grass's normal saline coastal habitat. I spoke with Cambridge County Council and they go out between 30 and 40 times a year to deliver 200 tonnes of rock salt, each time spreading it along 2,200 miles of roads across the county. That's 90 kilograms of salt per mile, or about 10 teaspoons of salt per metre of road. But in the meanwhile, how is scurvy grass spreading across the length and breadth of the country so quickly? Well, the air turbulence of passing traffic causes a pocket of low pressure behind the car, sucking in the seeds and dragging them along for large distances. Now, moving from motorway verges to a Petri dish, we ask, can we make life in a glass dish? And what defines life anyway? Hi, my name is Bob Archibald. I live in Berkeley,
3: California. Has there been any progress in creating a living organism from
12: basic elements in the lab? Send your thoughts to Chris at scientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. That was
1: Hannah Critchlow and you can get the Question of the Week podcast on iTunes or at our website, that's thenakedscientist.com slash QOTW.
3: And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Strathclyde University microbiologist Paul Hoskinson and the University of Florida's Harry Clee. We are away next week enjoying the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, but do join us the following week when we're going out in search of life in outer space. You can email your questions in to Chris at scientist.com tweet at Naked Scientist or find us on Facebook. Production this week is by Mira Thillingham, Benva. To Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. Have a very nice weekend and see you at the same time into its time.
0: The Naked Scientists Podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Welcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at NakedScientists.com.